0: Style calls you out right she speaks it before it is and when she does she's so accurate that you can't deny it That's right. it's just god speaking to you through her and so i'm not afraid anymore oh, wow. <laughs> but i am i am thankful that um, i'm thankful that god has given me an opportunity to actually use the gifts that he's given me So, you know, I'm headed over here, and when I walk in from the parking lot, Mary said something that had the word pastor in the sentence. And I said, excuse me? And she said it again. So I will tell you this. I'm not going to shy away from the the, the, the title, but I I feel like I have to confess something now. Because on the way over here, I'm driving behind this station wagon that was really moving way too slow. (laughs) And I'm trying to get on the off-ramp, and they're leaving space between them and the car in front of them, and the, and the light's getting ready to turn. And I just want you to know, they almost made me almost run a red light. <laughs> yeah, almost. I mean, almost meaning I got through with my tires on that side of the limit line when it was yellow. So it wasn't really, really, but I just feel like I just want to confess that so my testimony is not ruined. <laughs> But I'll tell you this, I've played a lot of football in my day, just to kind of make an introduction. And I had the opportunity to play with a guy that you may remember the name of a long time ago, Earl Campbell. Yeah. Earl was a Heisman Trophy winner his senior year, and, and was a freshman. And I was a quarterback, got to hand the ball off to him a few times, and that was a pretty special thing. It really was. I, mean, I Even to this day, if you play football for a long time or any particular sport, you still live the sport. You still see the sport. So I can tell you, I'm here... Walking down the hallway, and I see Amanda. I'm not sure where she is now, but she had a stroller. (laughs) And here's what went through my head. That's the lead blocker. (laughs) And I was already ready to position myself (laughs) and cut against the grain. I mean, that stuff just goes through your head. (laughs) It's just a very natural thing. So uh, Amanda, thank you. I just want to let you know, you know you were part of that, but neither do the people in the shopping malls, right? As I'm going down the corridor and I'm doing head fakes on people, they have no idea. And I'm telling you, it's just about getting to Macy's. That's the only thing that's really important. So I just want you to know, if you see that expression on me when you're seeing me in the mall, you'll know what I'm actually thinking. Uh, Some weeks ago, I had a, a men's group that I'm part of. They meet once a week. And um, I'm there probably two or three times a month, and I'm just kind of in the, in the room, and, and there's about 18 guys in there, and they're talking about men things, and one guy was kind of going deep on some stuff that was really challenging for him. And just sort of out of the blue, this fellow across the table looks at me and says, Sanford, how do you do it? And he went into this thing, and he's like, how do you raise such great kids, and how do you keep your family together, and how do you operate in the marketplace and still execute as a Christian? And he did have all these these uh, affirming comments. I literally, uh, I literally felt like crawling under the table. It was just, um, I said, no, you didn't. I mean. But it prompted me to realize there's a, there's a thing. There is one thing, because he asked me, so what was it? And I couldn't at the time distill it down to something, because really it's just a matter of saying yes. You know, when God says to homeschool your kids, you say yes. When God says you're going to work and your wife's going to stay home, you say yes. And when you get told something, you do it, he blesses the obedience. And that's about it, and you don't even know you're doing it half the time, you're just doing it. But it prompted me to recognize there is one thing. And I want to talk about that one thing with you. Because it is a real core issue that we need to embrace. And I believe that we as Christians suffer oftentimes by not knowing what the one thing is. In fact, it's not even half the time a matter of not knowing. It's a matter of I could and I should. But I don't. And if we're really obstinate, we realize it's really I could, and I should, but I won't. So you remember the last time I spoke at this church, I I told you about a friend of mine who changed my life. He shifted a paradigm in me that was really small, but it made a big difference for me in terms of understanding how God deals with faith and planning and work and how they integrate. And it did change my life. Not his particular illustration, but what it did to me that the Lord got a hold of me to say changed my world. Mm -hmm. This evening, I'm going to share with you some insights that God's given me about this one thing. Mm -hmm. And I want you to know that not all systems are equal. Mm -hmm. Because we're going to talk about systems tonight. Mm -hmm. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy Mm -hmm. and empty deceit. Empty deceit. Expanded says pseudo-intellectual babble, right? People come up and they say the darndest things. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. God is saying there's two different systems that we can execute from. You have a choice. You can choose the one that the world creates, that intellectual babble, The stuff that you look at and you turn your head sideways and wonder, how the heck they come up with that? (laughs) Or the one that Christ has for us. But it's not that ethereal. I'm telling you, God has systems in his word that if you pay close attention and if you apply them, they work. Mm. So there's this paratrooper. He said, um, I'm afraid of heights. A paratrooper, (laughs) afraid of heights. But he was told, no, it's going to be fine. You're going to jump. And we've not only put one, but we've put two parachutes on your back. So just in case the first parachute doesn't work, the second parachute will work. So you're good. So he, doubtingly, but he gets in the plane and gets to 10,000 feet, and he's clutching the roll bar. He's not leaving. (laughs) They finally pry his fingers loose and push him out the plane. So he's descending, pulls the first cord, and the parachute doesn't work on the first parachute. So he quickly pulls the second one, and it doesn't work. He says, doggone it, I knew it. I bet they don't have anybody down there waiting for him either. (laughs) I believe Christians operate with systems that are broken. It's unnecessary, but we do. And I believe that the ones that are broken are clearly obvious because those are the ones where we experience the most pain. Those are the ones that, where we can't seem to get over, where we can't seem to figure it out, where we just seem to have so much of an issue. They're broken systems, not because God doesn't have one for you. Here's a system. This poor fellow writes an accident report. His system's broken. (laughs) He says, dear sir, I'm responding to your request for additional information regarding how my recent injury occurred. So in block number three of your accident report, I put, quote, trying to do the job alone, end quote, as the cause of my accident. You said in a letter that I should explain more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. He says, I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley attached to the side of the building at the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then... I went back to the ground, untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. (laughs) You will note in block number two of the accident report form that my weight is 135 pounds. (laughs) So due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind. And did not let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded up at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. Near the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind, allowing me to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground, and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel then weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to the information in block number two. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. Near the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. (laughs) This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my legs and lower body. The encounter of the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto a pile of bricks. Fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I am sorry to report, however, that as I lay in pain on the bricks, unable to stand up, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. The empty barrel weighed more than the rope, so it came down upon me and broke both my legs. I hope I have furnished the additional information required as to how the accident occurred. (laughs) This brother's got a bad system. (laughs) The moral of the story, I think, if you'd have seen it in Ecclesiastes 4, is simple. It says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. I think if he'd have just paid attention, God has a system for everything. He gives us specific instructions. In this one thing that I find interesting about God's systems, he tells us that his systems include everything. He says in 2 Peter 1, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you, because he says, as his divine power, as God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does that mean? That means that it's like ragu sauce, right? Everything he's given us is in there to have us pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need is already there. Everything we need is already in the the Word. Mm -hmm. Every system we need is already there. So what is a system? A system can be a structure, like a telephone system, or a freeway system, or an ecosystem, a governmental system, a school system, Mm -hmm. or a system can be a a method. You know, we have operating systems like Apple iOS, or Android, so I'm like a... (laughs) (laughs) I want to be an equal opportunity. Digital, a Dewey Decimal System, right? A healthcare system. Systems are all over us and around us, and we're in one and we're part of one all the time. Romans 12 tells us a little bit more about systems. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You all know this verse. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you have systems, then you'll need to have a pattern, a pattern that is actually a guide, a model for how you're actually going to execute on the systems that you have. But you know there's more than one pattern. The world has a pattern too. God is telling us, look, don't pick the wrong one because I've got systems for you and everything you need is ready to go. So when I look at God's ways and his thoughts, I see him providing you and me with systems for everything, everything in life. And we have a system of all systems, by the way, because we as Christians have the best system available. So the question is, how does God use systems and how does man react to that? Here's some of the things man has been able to do using God's systems. Check this out. For you in the marketplace looking for ideas of how you can take your ideas to market, I'm going to tell you something. God gives you the ideas if you just look. Because look at the computer system, for example. computer system. It has a hard drive. You know it's just a mere copy of what God's given us as a brain? You ever thought about that? You got a hard drive that provides storage like our brain does. And some hard drives actually have more storage than others. It's kind of like saying somebody's smart, right? The more storage the person has, the more likely you're going to call them smart. It also has a central processing unit, a CPU. It, It runs by clock speed. That's how it's measured. But what do we have? We have this thing called intellect. And our intelligence is measured by an intelligence quotient or an IQ. It's a processing center that says how fast can you receive and impart information at any given time. We have different levels of intelligence, like computers have different levels of intel. But the one thing that's interesting about it is you can defrag a computer. How does that relate? What's the correlation? I just see that as, man, that's what fasting and prayer does for us. Right? It allows me to get rid of some of the clutter and allows me to actually make space for the Holy Spirit to speak to me. I need to defrag my computer. It makes fasting and praying more understandable to me. It's just not like this thing that causes pain. It's actually a purposeful endeavor. It's needed so I can defrag myself. It has a monitor. I love the monitor because what does the monitor represent? I see that as being the window to the soul. Do you know if you can have a computer that's where the CPU is running, you turn the monitor off? You can't see what the computer is doing. Do you know that God says that the eye is the light of the body? You know it says that. It says that the eye is the light of the body, if the eye be full of light, the whole body's full of light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if the eye be dark, the whole body's full of darkness. Pretty powerful. If you draw the connection, you see also then a system called a camera. A camera system has made a lot of money for people, and it has a lens, focuses on closer and farther objects. God uses, instead of a lens, he uses a retina to do the same thing. It has an aperture control, and the aperture control regulates the amount of light received. Well, God says, I'll do it differently. I'll originate it this way as a pupil in an iris. The camera has film. God says, you know what? If the film on your retina is scratched, your images won't turn out with quality images at all. Man has figured out a way to use God's originals to create a counterfeit in the marketplace and do exceptionally well with what they've done. Why can't we? Why wouldn't Christians be shrewd enough to be able to use God's systems to accomplish great victories in our families' lives? on all fronts something special about God's work that's caused phenomenal success because we serve a phenomenal God football just had a Super Bowl Bill Belichick how many of you know who he is? Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are the two winningest combination of quarterback and coaches ever in the NFL ever ever yeah They they weren't in the Super Bowl this year, though. (laughs) I tried to figure out, I was asking myself, why is that true? Why is it that in the last 30 seconds of a game, they pull stuff out? Why is it that when you go into the game, nobody bets against them? Why is it? Why is it they win stuff so much? Bill Belichick has won more than his disproportionate share of victories in the game of football. Why? And I've decided it's because he's got systems. He has systems that are better than the other coaches in the league. He has systems that win ball games because on a fourth and two situation, when there's 10 minutes left in the game, he knows exactly what play to call. And when it's fourth and two and there's 30 seconds left in the game, he knows exactly what play to call. I think he has systems that are just flat out better. A friend of mine worked for the San Francisco 49ers. He was a communication specialist. And he had access to the Patriots as well. He was saying that the facilities at the New England Patriots site are Spartan. They're like they're not glamorous. They're basic. Not like the other teams where it's glass and marble. It's just, just sparse. He says that they have some things going on there that are just different. He says there's a tagline for everything. It reduces the need for the players to be ideating stuff. He says, every word to the press is measured so as to retain the secrets of the New England Patriots offense and defensive efforts. And he said, most of the players, when they ask a question, the answer more often than not is, just do your job. Just do your job. It's simple. It's a system. You know what they call it? They call it the Patriots way. Each player, several months before training camp, they come in having memorized the playbook. And when they get there, their effort is to run through the plays, rehearse the plays, consider every situation that might confront them from every team they might play, and be able to make the minor adjustments on the spot. So much so that by the time training camp is over, they've already played the game before the game even begins. It's a system. It's a system. It's the Patriots' way. So what system has he given us as Christians to be victorious? What has God done in that regard? And do you have a system for your family? Not just to be a Christian, but to be a victorious Christian. Good. Have you figured that out? I don't want to be a Christian without being victorious. I'm telling you, there's nothing more attractive to me than to be free to be a victorious Christian. That's right. That's right. And do you know that if we, when we, as a church, with a big C or a church with a small C, figure out how to use God's systems to be victorious, this church in San Clemente will explode? There's no question. So often you'll find churches that teach by story, and the story is very often something that's extraneous to God's word, and then they throw in a scripture to sort of justify the story. Have you seen that? I will tell you that they have a hard time figuring out why people tithe 3% of their income on average. They have a hard time understanding why half the people don't show up on Sundays, I would say that the Rock South County has get, gets that. I think that Pastor Jerry gets it. I think that's why the church is growing so well. You dig deep. You teach people how to win. You teach people how to use the systems God has to be victorious. And those people become more mature and can't help themselves. That's how that works. So raise your hand if you know the answer to this question. What is it in our system that God's given us, the one thing in this system? That would cause you to be wiser than your teachers. Unless the teachers are doing the same thing. (laughs) That would cause you to be wiser than the ancients. That would cause you to be wiser than your enemies. How many of you, by the showing of hands, know what that one thing is? A couple of you. Well, so some of you might say that the one thing that God gives us that promises those things is reading the Bible. And I say, no, it's a prerequisite, but no, that's not it. Some of you would say that it's witnessing. No, it's a natural response, but that's not what it is either. Some of you might say, well, it's prayer. And I say, well, that's a natural immediate result, but that's not it. What about memorizing scripture? No. It's a good preparation, though, but that's not it. What's the one thing? Well, I can say with conviction that the best and closest I've ever been with God is when this one thing has been a central part of my life. I can see you guys turning around trying to, what is it? <laughs> it's so funny to see that from up here, right? The eyes and the light of the body, you can see it straight out. Psalm 1, you've all seen it before. Psalm 1. The the, the the joy of the promises of Scripture, in my opinion, is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. It says, in his law, he meditates day and night. In the fullness of that verse, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that brings fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Can you think of a more amazing promise than that? Can you think of a place where a tree would rather be seated than that next to streams of water? God is saying that if you do this one thing, he promises that you will be prosperous in whatever you do. Deuteronomy 6-7 says it again. God doesn't say it just once, but to you fathers, he says, You shall teach them, your children, diligently, excuse me, you shall teach them God's word diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you're sitting in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Is there any part of the day that he missed? I think that's it. Can you actually do that with carrying your Bible around? I think it's implied that you're going to have to memorize the verses first. In 1st Timothy, he says, "Meditate on these things, which is your spiritual gifts." He says, "Give yourself entirely to them that you may progress or that your progress may be evident to all." He cares about your reputation. He wants your progress to be evident at all. He doesn't want it to be something that you just hold on and keep to yourself. In Joshua 1.8, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. I'm going to go back. I'm going to ask you something, if you notice, in Psalm 1. Do you realize the process that God gave us here about this person? He says, blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of square. Do you know the progression of this fellow? He was walking, and then you find him standing. And the next thing you know, he's sitting. Let me tell you, your biggest enemy when you leave the room tonight is going to be just that. It's going to be this thing where you're going to go out and you're going to say, aha, you know what? If that's the promise that I can trust God given me, that if I just do this one thing, that I'll be blessed and prosperous in whatever I do, the enemy is going to have you walking in that direction, and then you're going to pass a television set. And it's going to have a game on, or it's going to have a soundtrack to a phenomenal movie, and you'll stop and stand. And then the movie gets better, and it's fourth down. And then you sit. God has us pegged. He knows how we work. He knows how we roll. Can we do something about that? Here's how we do it. It's not easy, but it's doable. How do we memorize scripture? I will tell you this. Scripture memorization is not a matter of ability. It's just a matter of interest. You just have to be interested. If I gave you $100 for every verse you memorize, you'd memorize Scripture. That's just how it works. So track with this with me because I want to talk to you about how to memorize Scripture and how to meditate on it. And this is a way. This is just part one of another whole series of conversation we could have. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see something here. Many times when you ask people what comprises a man or a woman, and they'll say, uh, and you'll give them a hint. It's kind of like the Trinity, kind of like the triune God. He made us in his image and his likeness. How did he make us? And they will say, body, soul, and spirit. And you can say, no. It's not what it says. God does not mix words. He says it the way he means it. He says the spirit comes first. Spirit, soul, and the thing behind in the caboose of the car is the body. Why is that important? It's important because when we become Christians, our spirit joins with his spirit and we become one. The illustration for me in that is it's like Tom Brady looks over at the sidelines and he's so connected with his coaching staff, with Bill Belichick, they don't have to really say much of anything. A little gesture, a little hand signal, and he's got the play. You cannot do that if you don't have a relationship with the coach. In this case, the Holy Spirit is the coach. How can you actually get the play called if you don't have a relationship? So as Christians, we have this relationship that's amazing because the relationship introduces us to and unravels and unpacks all the systems. We have full access to everything that God's given us. Then we have the soul, the suke. This is like our central processing unit. This is where all the data gets processed. And there's three components within that soul. There's the mind, there's the will, and there's the emotions. The reason you have to unpack the soul is because you've got to deal with each one of them differently. We've seen it all the time where you can educate the mind, but you have to train the will. You know what I'm saying? Anybody with young kids understands that. It's so funny. I think about this. This dad was uh, talking about how he had a son that was about eight years old, and they were standing on the curb, and the dad said, Son, stay right here. I just got to go in the house for a minute. Stay right here. So the dad goes into the house, and the son decides that he wanted to run across the street to visit a friend. So he does. And sure enough, right about that time, around the corner comes a car and hits him, breaks his leg. So the son's in the hospital, Dad comes to visit him. The son says to the dad, Dad, I'm so sorry. I promise I'll never break my leg again. (laughs) There is some separation between the mind and the will that we need to understand because it's the will that's going to cause us to sit down instead of staying on course. I could, I should. But I won't. The body, the flesh, it's to be buffeted, of course. And yet it's useful for lifting and carrying, but it just can't take the lead. Mm -hmm. So there's this image that probably won't show up all that well that kind of depicts this. But if you can picture this in your mind's eye, the way I see this whole process of growth is I see we have a choice at all given times for our soul to receive data. And that data is either going to come from our spirit, reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, meditating on it, and actually living it out, or it's going to come from the flesh, where I spend an inordinate amount of time in places and doing things that are really not beneficial to me. The data is going to come into my central processing unit, which is basically just waiting for data, and it's going to feed me whatever I get fed. And guess what shows up? my behavior. Out of my mouth comes the things that are in me. It's kind of like one pastor was talking about a Pepsi bottle where you put the thumb over the Pepsi bottle and you shake up the Pepsi bottle. Then you take your thumb off what comes out. Pepsi. (laughs) You didn't have to put the Pepsi in there. It was already there. And if you shake up a man or a woman, get them agitated, whatever's in there comes out. And you get to have a real understanding of what's in someone's soul when they get a little angry. I had a friend named Jerry when we were homeschooling our kids, and this was the first time I had the opportunity that I at least cognitively recognized to memorize and meditate on God's Word. And I was surprised what we were able to do on a Wednesday afternoon sitting in a park bench. He was another homeschool dad, had a family about the same age as ours. And Jerry was an engineer, so he was like... Um, no prisoners when this idea that came up about us memorizing scripture. So we, on Wednesday afternoons, would sit there and memorize all of Romans 6 and all of Romans 7, all of Romans 8. Why did we do it? Because we found that we were both very interested in being faithful to our wives. And we were both very interested in making sure that we just simply didn't do stupid stuff. So that's what we did. And do you know, I can tell you right now, men... If you memorize Romans 6, 7, and 8, and you let that stuff ruminate during the day, I would just about guarantee, in fact, I think I would, my next paycheck, that you will not have a problem with moral impurity. You just won't. God's Word is so convicting that if you just get the system in you, then you'll execute out of your soul the way you really choose to. Three steps to memorizing Scripture and meditating on it. Here they are. For your mind, you memorize the verse. As you grow, you'll memorize a passage. Fanny Crosby memorized so many verses that she wrote song after song after song to the point of writing 15 songs in a day. She was so dialed in. She had memorized so many verses, and she had written so many songs that the publishers became embarrassed and started giving her pen names. So when you see Fanny Crosby's work, she's writing under five different names. Mm-hmm. We don't even know just how many songs she wrote. She was so full of the word, it just came out. Mm-hmm. So for your mind, what you do is you memorize, you call the play. The Holy Spirit gives you the play. And then you think with God's thoughts. Psalm 25 is a great representation of a place you can go to understand how to passionately cry out for what God is trying to signal to you. How to do that. Psalm 25 is powerful that way. Then step two, for your will. The will needs to visualize. The will needs to have a play drawn. It can't be a text. Because the will is kind of like, yeah, I don't know if I believe that. I'm not sure if I'm going to change. So the will has to see the benefits. I think that's why God speaks in parables and stories so much because we don't necessarily make changes unless we see the benefit of the change. We have to remove distractions for the will because the will gets preoccupied and chases after bright and shiny lights. (laughs) I remember being in British Columbia last summer and uh, there was this fellow at the table. He said... I have ADDSQIS. He said, attention deficit. Where's that squirrel? <laughs> I mean, I think the mind, the will, are two different animals, man. They're, you've got you've to train that will. He's going to rise up. So you draw a play for the, for the, for the will. The, the third step, then, is to deal with your emotions. And with the emotions, you just simply have to invite them in. You have to personalize the verse. You have to replace the generic terms with I and me and my. You have to put yourself in it. The emotions need to be in the, in the game. And they need to be directed in that regard. Here's the thing. It's uncomplicated. <laughs> But I will tell you this, my vision for this church, even as we were praying earlier this mor- this afternoon, my vision for this church is that we take and embrace this issue of meditating on God's word. Yeah. My vision for this church is that we become strong and stronger from the inside out. My vision for this church is that we not hope and pray that people show up, but we will be so Attractive we'll become who we need to be for people to want to be here. Yes. My vision for this church is that we just be. our job.